0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we witnessed the last pharaoh of the Second Dynasty, Kazahimwe, as he ended the long series of crises that rocked Egypt throughout the late proto-dynastic period, and reunited a fractured Egypt into one kingdom. He left Egypt in a state of prosperity and stability. This week, we'll see his successors extend that prosperity, and build some of the greatest monuments in human history. Episode 7, Egypt's Age of Gold So, if you're a big fan of Egyptian history, you've probably heard of the three kingdoms before, the Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms. These kingdoms represent times when Egypt experienced a long period of great prosperity and stability, when innovation and culture and crafts were flourishing. However, records from the Old Kingdom, especially its later dynasties, are pretty sparse. For this reason, Most of what we know about Old Kingdom pharaohs comes from their buildings and statues, and their political activities remain somewhat obscure by comparison. Hazahemwe's death is usually regarded as the beginning of the Old Kingdom period. In the last episode, we learned that Hazahemwe died at a surprisingly young age, ruling for only 12 years. His son, Djoser, was only a small child when his father died. So as was customary, the boy's mother, Nematop, acted as regent while the boy pharaoh grew up. Now, I'm sure some of you are wondering why Djoser is considered the start of a new dynasty. I mean, he's the son of the last pharaoh, so shouldn't he be in the same dynasty as that pharaoh? Well, the Egyptians actually viewed family ties a little bit differently than how we view them, as they saw them as flowing through the mother's line, not the father's. This also explains why incestuous marriages were so common, as marrying your mother or sister was seen as the only way to truly preserve the dynasty. So, while Joser was a son of Khasekhemwy, he was seen as being from Nematop's family line, and since she wasn't part of the Second Dynasty, neither is Joser. Anyways, Nematop enjoyed nowhere near the power of premious motherly regents. Unlike Nithotep and Maranith, her name does not appear on any royal serifs, and she is not listed on any king's lists. This exclusion indicates that Nematop never truly held much royal power, and really only filled the role of assisting young Djoser with his religious duties while the bureaucracy handled the earthly matters. The boy rarely left Memphis, and lived a comfortable, privileged lifestyle in the royal palace. When he came of age, he ascended to the throne of Egypt. Throughout his reign, Djoser would permanently live in Memphis becoming the first pharaoh of a united Egypt to permanently reside in the capital city at pretty much all times. Djoser's first task as pharaoh involved the long-time enemies of ancient Egypt, the Eunedi. These Middle Eastern nomads were expert archers, and often caused trouble for Egyptian settlements near the Sinai Peninsula, and even raided merchant caravans that crossed between Canaan and Egypt. Between these people and the Egyptians were perpetually tense as a result with multiple pharaohs of the 1st and 2nd dynasties leading expeditions into the Sinai to pacify them. Djoser ordered the creation of another one of these military expeditions to crush the Eunedi. The expedition was a success. However, during this military expedition, some Egyptian soldiers noticed that the region had an abundance of valuable minerals, including valuable luxury stones like turquoise and dolomite, but most importantly, copper, the Old Kingdom Egyptians, copper was everything. They farmed, built, and fought with copper tools. Therefore, with the discovery of copper, Djoser knew that this region was too valuable to let go. Instead, he converted the expedition into a more permanent military occupation, with prospectors and miners joining the soldiers. The Iuneti were never mentioned again in Egyptian records likely fleeing from this invasion never to return, or perhaps massacred by the invading Egyptian army. With security ensured in the Sinai, Joser's eye turned to domestic policy. To assist him in this field, he enlisted a man named Imhotep. Imhotep was an important bureaucratic official who wore many different hats, from head of the royal shipyard to head masonry overseer. He never technically held the title of vizier, as he was a commoner, and that position was reserved only for royal family members. But he held all the power and prestige that the position implies. Imhotep was something of the da Vinci of ancient Egypt, a renaissance man in the truest sense of the word. Imhotep's foremost interest was in medicine, which might explain why he became so close to the pharaoh. Speculating, I think it's likely that Djoser, one of his loved ones, came down with an illness and that Imhotep was the physician who cured them of this disease. Or perhaps Joser just recognized his talents from afar and gradually promoted him over time. He would become a chief advisor of the pharaoh in matter of state, arts, architecture, and religion. In one ancient Egyptian folk story, Egypt is hit by a famine due to a lack of floods from the Nile. Joser immediately turns to Imhotep for advice. instructs the pharaoh on the proper way to conduct sacrifices for Hanum, the god of the Nile, and thus alleviates the famine. The story of Djoser's famine is apocryphal, as it was first recorded thousands of years after his reign, but I think it accurately reflects something about the amount of influence that a man like Imhotep had in religious matters. Remember that Egypt had just come out of a major religious transformation at the end of the Second Dynasty, and that the cult of Set was still an influential faction within the Egyptian priestly class. The previous pharaoh, Khasekhemwy claimed descent from both Set and Horus during his reign, as means to alleviate the tension between the two factions, and there's some evidence that Djoser continued this practice during the early years of his reign. However, it seems that Djoser abruptly ended the official veneration of Set, A decision that may have been influenced by Imhotep. Set would remain an important god in the Egyptian pantheon, but his status as an equal to Horus was vastly demoted. The trust and respect that Imhotep enjoyed is exemplified most by Djoser's decision to let him design the pharaoh's tomb. Typically, as had been the case after Den started the practice, pharaohs would design and begin construction on their own tomb while they were still alive, and would then entrust their successor to finish the proper rites and burial practices. Egyptian funerary practices were incredibly precise, and a small mistake in burial or construction of a tomb could result in the pharaoh not being able to experience the afterlife. Therefore, it's very telling of Djoser's trust that he instructed Imhotep to design and build his tomb. Clearly honored by this decision, Imhotep set out to design the most ambitious and magnificent tomb Egypt had ever seen. Prior to Djoser, all pharaohs were buried in a very specific type of tomb, called a mastaba. A mastaba is essentially a big cube made of mud bricks with a flat roof and sides that slope slightly upwards. In an earlier episode, I asked you to envision essentially a small pyramid with its top third sliced off. The point of this structure was to act as essentially a cap on the pharaoh's tomb, to protect those buried inside from the elements and from grave robbers. Throughout the 1st and 2nd dynasties, these mastabas had gradually grown in shrunken scale, but all largely followed the same plan. Some previously ambitious pharaohs of Lower Egypt had experimented with the design of stacking two or three mastabas on top of each other, but were mostly unable to build these projects at any grand scale due to the poor economic state of Egypt limiting the resources and labor at their disposal. Due to the good economic conditions, however, Imhotep had a near-limitless amount of resources at his disposal, and his ambitious design would completely turn Egyptian tomb-building techniques on its head. In order to showcase the grandness of the pharaoh Djoser, Imhotep figured that one mastaba was simply insufficient. Rather, he envisioned Djoser receiving not one, but many distinct mastabas stacked on top of each other. This would result in the creation of a large, pyramid-shaped structure with six distinct layers each one slightly smaller than the previous. Work on this massive project started in Saqqara next to the Great Enclosure built by Hazahemwe. Unlike previous mastabas, built with mudbrick, Djoser's tomb covered the mudbrick interior with a shell of quarried limestone blocks transported on a massive system of rollers. With a total volume of 330,000 cubic meters, the monument, now known as the Step Pyramid of Djoser, was unprecedented in scale and splendor during its time of construction. Apparently, it was also incredibly well-constructed, with the majority of the structure remaining intact to this day. I'll be posting pictures of the Step Pyramid, and all the other pyramids that we mentioned today, on our associated blog if you'd like to see it. The pyramid was surrounded by a large complex of necropolis buildings, where a small legion of priests would have conducted Djoser's funerary rites. The buildings in this complex are arranged facing north, so that they could face the North Star. Stars were an important symbol in ancient Egyptian religion, as they were eternal, and thus facing the stars would allow the pharaoh to join these eternal symbols in the sky during the afterlife. When he eventually died, Djoser's body was buried in a deep maze of catacombs that stretched for over 6 kilometers. This labyrinthian complex was intentionally meant to be confusing, as to ensure that grave robbers would be unable to disturb Joser's final resting place and rob him of his afterlife. Joser died after a successful rule of 28 years. He and his wife, who was also a sister, of course, only produced one child, a daughter. Now, while women had held the position of Pharaoh in the past, this was only ever in the context of acting as a temporary regent for their son, and never inherited the title as an heir. So, when Djoser died, he was left without a son to succeed him. In previous periods, this probably would have blown up in everyone's face, and resulted in an extended crisis and bloody civil war. However, attesting to the state of stability of Egypt at the time, is that rule passed peacefully to his brother, Djoser T. Djoser T was already fairly old when he took the throne, and therefore he only ruled for about six years. Little is known about the actual events that transpired during his reign. Interestingly, T, as well as his predecessor, had revived the practice of wearing the two crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt separately, showing that while he ruled a united Egypt with absolute power, T still had to respect the autonomy of Upper and Lower Egypt, at least in a ceremonial sense. Most of T's reign can just be described as continuing the practice of his older brother, he was happy not to disrupt the status quo. After all, Egypt was in a good place economically and politically at the time of Djoser's death, so why try to fix what isn't broken? Imhotep likely outlived Djoser and continued to be a key advisor during the reign of Djoser T, as his architectural motifs remained present throughout the rule of Djoser T. When exactly Imhotep died is unclear, but this likely occurred sometime during the reign of Djoser T. After his death, Imhotep became the first-ever non-royal Egyptian to become deified, worshipped as a minor god of medicine. The last project he may have been involved in was the Pyramid of Djoser-T, a structure that resembled a near-exact copy of Djoser's Pyramid, though with seven layers instead of six. However, unlike Djoser's Pyramid, the Pyramid of Djoser-T was never fully completed. The inner structure of mud brick, as well as the subterranean system of tunnels, were finished, but Joser T. died before the final limestone shell could be added to the pyramid. A pharaoh's successor was usually tasked with finishing the tomb of his predecessor, but it seems that in this case, Joser T.'s successor figured that the mostly finished structure was good enough as it is, and never needed to add the limestone shell. Apparently, however, this was a very incorrect assumption. The pyramid collapsed in on itself, and was left in ruins. The sands of the Egyptian desert later came in to reclaim this forgotten monument, and left it buried for thousands of years. Befitting the fate of such a tragic monument, the structure is still largely unexcavated today. If you'd like to learn about the strange manner of the excavation, involving a tragic suicide and some sketchy accusations of smuggling, that will be the topic of this week's premium episode, which you can access by supporting the show on Patreon. Anyways, Joser T was succeeded by a man named Senacht. Senacht's relationship with Joser T is unclear. Due to the shortness of his reign, however, we can assume that he took the throne at a relatively old age, implying that he was most likely the brother of Joser and Joser T. Senacht, like Joser T, was a close follower of the status quo, not doing much during his short reign to stand out from his brothers. Really, the only unusual thing about Sannacht's reign was Sanacht himself. Unlike his reign, Senacht was not short, towering over his piers at 6 feet and 1 inches tall. That height isn't particularly impressive to us today, but for the time it was absolutely massive. Compared to the average height of the time, this is the equivalent of 6 feet and 8 inches tall. So, to an ancient Egyptian peasant, Sannacht's reign was like having Lebron James as king. Anyways, due to the shortness of his reign, Senacht never had time to build himself a pyramid, he instead settled on living his afterlife in a large mastaba built outside of Abydos. Senacht was succeeded by his son, Huni, also known as Chaba, the last pharaoh of the third dynasty. Huni enjoyed a rule of considerable length. He was the first pharaoh since set to considerably expand the bureaucracy, appointing a vizier and delegating much of his local authority to Nomarchs. As with previous rulers, the decision to delegate power to the bureaucracy and local leaders increased the efficiency of the Egyptian state. Egypt enjoyed a long period of peace and prosperity under Huni's rule, with many large building projects being erected during his reign. One of these building projects was the expansion of a small rural settlement near the border of Upper and Lower Egypt into a major city, Het He also pursued a project of building small step pyramids throughout the gnomes of Upper Egypt. These micro-pyramids were not used as tombs, so their exact purpose remains a mystery, with the most popular theory being that they were used as places of worship. Huni also pursued a project of shoring up Egypt's defenses on its southern border. The southernmost major city of Egypt, Nehen, proved to be effective as a border city in stopping Nubian raids in the past. However, Egypt also controlled several small settlements south of Nehen until the first cataract which the Egyptians had a hard time defending. Huni had to choose a new location further up the Nile to garrison Egyptian soldiers if these settlements were to be protected from Nubian raids. He chose a strategically important location just north of the first cataract, an island in the Nile River known as Elephantine, close to modern Aswan. Elephantine's geography made it difficult to attack from the land and allowed the Egyptians to control what flowed up and down the Nile. Finally, in order to protect the already naturally defensible position, Huni commissioned the creation of a series of fortifications to protect the garrison at Elephantine. These forts would serve as the border between Egypt and Nubia throughout the Old Kingdom period. In the future, when relations between Egypt and Nubia focus less on raiding and more on trading, Elephantine would benefit from this economic shift, and become a major center of trade on the Nile River. For now, though, it would remain a small rural outpost which served as the end of Egyptian authority. Huni died in 2613 BC, after 24 successful years as pharaoh. He sought to imitate his ancestors of Djoser and djoser T with the creation of a step pyramid at Saqqara. The pyramid was more humble than those of his predecessors, smaller in height and width, with only five steps in its structure. However, it seems that, like djoser T. Puni had some difficulties finishing his tomb. The pyramid collapsed not long after its construction had been completed, and today more resembles a pile of rubble than a tomb fit for a king. So far, the Egyptian pharaohs are one for three when it comes to building pyramids, and as we'll see in the future, it will still take them a little while to improve in this regard. On a side note, I think that the trial and error that the Egyptians went through to learn how to build these marvelous monuments really shows off the human ingenuity that had to go into the creation. Building a pyramid with the technology available at the time wasn't just an easy thing to do, as even a slight mistake in material used or dimensions built could result in the entire structure collapsing in on itself. To me, this makes the completed pyramids even more impressive as it shows how flawless their design and construction had to be to stand the test of time. It also highlights that these pyramids were in fact built by humans with human error. So, if you see someone on UFO forums or... (sighs) The History Channel say that the pyramids are too perfect to have been created by humans, you should tell them how these pyramids could only be successfully built after several failed pyramids showed them what mistakes to avoid. While Huni's reign was successful, He died without an heir, and with no living brothers to take the throne in his stead. He did have one child, however, a daughter named Hetaferes. His daughter married a nomarch from Khmunu, a city near the border of Upper and Lower Egypt, named Sneferu. Now a son-in-law taking over as Pharaoh was viewed as completely illegitimate, and in a less stable era it probably would have provoked a civil war, or at least a few rebellions. But, in a testament to just how far Egypt had come since the Second Dynasty, Sneferu's ascent to the throne was largely uncontested. With Sneferu on the throne, the Third Dynasty came to an end, and the Fourth Dynasty would somehow bring Egypt to even higher heights during this golden age. Join us next week, when Sneferu and his descendants rule the Old Kingdom during its absolute zenith, and build the Great Pyramids of Giza. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.